It's like I spat on people last week or something, but this is a little bit like standoffish here. I'm feeling like we're, I'm the bus driver and you guys are like, oh, the back of the bus is where it's at. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for taking a lead and coming up. Good morning. How are you, Carol? Okay. We're going to dive in today. We're actually starting a new series called How to Neighbor. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm really excited about these conversations we're going to have over the next several weeks. But before we do that, I just want to recognize what today is. Uh, today is September 11th, and 15 years ago, some planes flew into the World Trade Center. And I'll tell you that I was not... Many of you guys were alive uh, when JFK was shot. Many of you can, can remember vividly where you were when you heard about JFK's assassination. I wasn't alive for that, so I didn't experience that. But for my generation, 9-11 was that kind of moment that something that happened thousands of miles away has shaped my perception of this world and shook me to the core. And I remember very vividly that day I woke up and we turned on the TV and all of a sudden you start seeing the repeats of the planes flying into the towers and we're just trying to kind of come to terms with it. And then I was scheduled to work. I was a lifeguard at the time down in Newport Beach. So I was scheduled to sit in a lifeguard tower. And so I kind of tore myself away from the TV and drove down to the Balboa Pier, climbed up into Main Street, the M, M Pier, or the tower there at Main Street. Um, and it was September 11th, so there weren't, everybody was back in school, there weren't a lot of people on the beach. So I had a couple of friends come and sit in the tower with me, and we spent the rest of that day trying to wrap our arms around what type of hatred would cause somebody to sacrifice their life to take somebody else's. Tried to, to wrap our arms around what had transpired and how it changed our world, and what now? Like, what did we do to deserve this kind of a, a reaction, to deserve this type of vehement hate? And it was a tough, tough, confusing day. And in the coming days and weeks, we began to see some silver linings, right? There were some positive things that came out of September 11th. It unified us as a country in ways that only tragedy can. We began to, as a country, grieve the loss of the lives. And also to celebrate every single living person that was pulled from that rubble. And we began to honor the men and women who bravely ran towards those burning buildings to sacrifice in their own life to save other people. And then there was also the, we, we saw a, a, a spiritual resurgence after 9-11. I mean, there's, there's nothing like having the American idols that we look to for our comfort and the, the sense of control, having those things shaken Recognizing that all of our money and all of our power and all of our influence could not insulate us from being hurt. To cause us to reach towards one that is in control. And go, God, help us make sense of this. And so we, we celebrated the silver lining of having faces that we had not seen in churches and pews filled with people who were just trying to make sense of a tragedy. And then on the flip side, there was also some real ugliness that came out of that day. I think specifically of the way that it caused many of us to look at a segment of our population radically different. I mean, let's remember, we had been attacked, sideswiped, by a handful of Middle Eastern terrorists 
And so we began to look at everybody else. I, I won't say all of us, but many of us began to look at people who looked that same way in a different light. At the very least, with a sense of holding them at arm's length. As if they were somehow complicit in that, or at the very least were supportive of it. I remember talking to a friend of mine shortly after 9-11. He had been on a plane, ready to fly somewhere, and he said that he was unprepared for the feelings that washed over him of anxiety and fear when a, a man who looked Arab walked onto the plane. Not because of anything he was doing, not because he was acting suspicious, but simply because of the way he looked and the way he was dressed. And after 9-11, we began to clump people together and hold them at arm's length. And you fast forward 15 years, decade and a half, and you look at the state of the church today. You look at the state of our society, I should say, today. And we're not much better off than we were shortly after 9-11. In fact, if anything, I think we're further from it. We have continued down that path of holding people at arm's length and feeling fear. You can't turn on the television today without hearing about another shooting or hearing about another peaceful demonstration that has devolved into violence. This sense of disunity has become one of the main pillars of this election cycle. It's all over social media. It's even leaked into our sporting events. And guys, I've got to tell you, I stand here today to talk about the prejudices that we carry around, and I've got to tell you that I am very, very hesitant to broach this subject because I know what a sensitive subject this is. And I have felt firsthand the way that this topic can be divisive, can divide even people who love one another dearly. And yet at the same time, you know, I, I, well, quite honestly, I've seen the way that this conversation can devolve into finger pointing and saying, they're at fault, they're at fault. Well, they did this. No, they did this. They're bigoted. No, they're bigoted. And we go nowhere. So I've got to tell you that there's some hesitancy on my part, but at the same time, we cannot close our eyes to this and just pretend like nothing's happening. And we just sing, sing a couple of songs and read a passage that's encouraging and we go on with our married lives as if there's not woundedness and pain and distrust that is eating away at our society, eating away at relationships like dry rot. We have become the disunited states of America right now. And this goes even beyond our country to the way that we look at others. I'm talking about prejudice today because all of us, I would suggest, have prejudices that we've carried in. And before you kind of put up your defenses and say, hold on, Eric, this is for somebody else. This is not for me. Don't point a finger. You don't know my heart. Let me just remind us what we're talking about here. The word prejudice simply means to prejudge. That's it. We make prejudgments. And every time we come in, you guys made prejudgments the first time you showed up here at Lighthouse. Oh, what a cute little church. It's got stained glass windows. How quaint. (laughs) Right? Some of them are true. Some of them aren't. But you make prejudgments about everything. And everywhere we go, we make prejudgments about the people that we meet, the people we interact with, that affect the way that we view them, 
affect the way we think about them and oftentimes affect the way that we treat them. Now, if you don't believe me, let's just go, let's go ahead and uh, have a little test here. Can we throw up uh, these? I've got some pictures here. I just want you to think. You don't have to say them out loud, but just think of what are the, the words that spring to mind when you see these pictures. You don't know these people. I don't know these people. Okay? What are the thoughts that come to mind? These people are cool. These people are... Okay, can we pause for just a second? We're going a little too quickly here. I want to give us a, a chance to actually sit in. And what are those... You look at this one. Maybe you go, okay, I don't know what the words are coming to your mind, but I just need to tell you something. Both of the people in these pictures are pastors here in Orange County. Is that what was coming to your mind? Probably like, oh, I'd love to spend some time in a dark alley with those people. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Okay, what are the first thoughts that come to your mind? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, but, but here, I, I just want us to recognize that perhaps our, our, our prejudgments aren't always on point. This is actually a group of Muslims who are protesting the violence and hatred of ISIS. If you could read these signs, and I can only read a few of them because most of them are in Arabic, it says, no, say no to terrorism. Stop, terrorists in, stop terrorizing innocent civilians. World Muslims are united against ISIS. Not what I initially thought when I first saw that picture. One more. <laughs> Welcome to Southern California where the skies are blue and the trash is white, right? <laughs> Don't judge a brother. Anyway, when, when you... Okay, we can move on. <laughs> Get rid of it. <laughs> I love you, Michael. All right, so we each carry prejudices around us. And I just want to tell you guys that we're not born with those prejudices. We don't come out of the womb prejudging other people, right? My kids, when they were born, and particularly when they were young, didn't hate or didn't mistrust other people. You know what they hated? Naps. That's what my boys hate. Not other people. I had no problem taking Ethan to the dentist the first time. And then he gets that cleaning done. They find, oh, we got a cavity. We're going to have to do this. He had a bad experience. And from then on, every single dentist has been colored with that paintbrush. My boy's perception of the dentist has been affected by that first experience at the dentist. I'm not standing up here today pointing fingers at other people saying, you are guilty of this. I'm simply saying we need to be aware of the filters that we view the world from because we carry around prejudgments that we have made. And so I was thinking about it this week, and I'm going, well, where, where do these prejudgments come from? If we're not born with them, if they're not innate to us, where do they come from? I can think of a few, and I'm sure that there are other places we get them, but here are three of the main places we get them. The first would be they're born out of our pain. When we get hurt, when something happens that we go, oh, I didn't expect that. My boy goes to the dentist. Oh, I get to go here. I'm going to get a sticker afterward. Ow, that hurts. All of a sudden he starts viewing dentists together because he is not going to let his guard down. Same thing happened 9-11. We got sucker punched devastated by a handful of terrorists that wanted to strike terror into the heart of our nation. And our knee-jerk reaction, understandably, is I do not want to be in this position again. I don't want to let my guard down. And so I'm going to look 
with caution on other people that remind me of that. Same way that maybe somebody who got bit as a child by a dog and never had a dog of their own growing up is going to be hesitant to be around any dogs. Not because all dogs are going to bite you, but because I have had a bad experience. Right? So pain is one of the ways that we develop prejudgments about other people. It's a way of protecting ourselves from being hurt again. Another reason that we kind of gather up these prejudgments is because we don't live life in a vacuum. We are interacting with other people. And quite often we'll pick up their prejudices, their prejudgments from them and adopt them as our own. Right? Because kids and adults, we're impressionable. And we have trusted people around us, our parents, our peers, our our mentors, and they say, man, be careful of those people. They're not trustworthy. Or that group of people over there, they're lazy. Or, Or this group of people here, they're out to get you. And we accept that as truth. And then we take those things and it affects the way that we interact perhaps with that group of people. It certainly affects the way we look at them. And then maybe you actually have a negative experience or perhaps because of the prejudgments you've made, it causes your posture towards them to be different. And so it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you have a negative interaction with them and you go, see, I knew it. And it solidifies those prejudgments that you've gathered. And if we're not careful, we can very easily pass those prejudgments on to others, to the next generation. So we learn these things through our pain. We learn them through others. And then the other one is simply our ignorance. We don't know any different. Our knee-jerk reaction as human beings is whatever we don't know is scary, is dangerous. And we tend to, there are some people who run at those kind of things. I might be considered one of those that really likes things that are uncomfortable. But, but for most of us, we don't like to be, like my boys don't ever want to watch a, a, a television show they've never seen. I don't like it. Why don't you like it? Well, I don't like it. Or eat this. I don't like that. Have you ever had a bite of it? No. Well, then why don't you like it? I just don't like it. And then they eat it, and they're like, ooh, I want, I want more. Or they watch a show, and now like my, my boys are hooked on the Jetsons. Like they cannot stop watching the Jetsons. But at first, like, I don't want to watch this. This is dumb, right? And we have this tendency to hold things that we don't know or that are unfamiliar from us or different from us at arm's length. And one of the dangers is we're comfortable in our ignorance. Think about this for a moment, and I'm not pointing fingers, but one of our our postures is that we will surround ourselves with people who say the things that we think because it's comfortable, because it kind of solidifies how we feel, and it doesn't challenge us to grow. So I want you to consider, where are you getting your information? What are the news sites or the stations that you watch? Do they present a a holistic, broad view with both perspectives, or is it just one side of the argument? Who do we, are you willing, when you're, when you're flipping through social media and you come upon something that somebody is saying that is contrary to what you believe or what you think, do you flip right by it and just kind of write it off as, oh man, that person's bigoted. That person is so small-minded. Or do you actually stop and engage and listen to what that person is saying, trying to understand where they're coming from? Because if we don't do that, 
then we will find ourselves drifting more and more towards polar extremes and the divide between us will become more and more great. And we will allow ourselves to stay in ignorance. All this, by the way, is just lead into where we're going to go this morning. We'll get there in just a moment. I'm not going to stand up here right now and I'm not going to try to tell you that the solution to this is that we simply stop being prejudiced. It's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous of me to try. Because the reality is, our prejudices are a natural byproduct of our life in this world. Life in a broken world with people who are different from us. They are the natural byproduct of the interactions that we've had with other people that have maybe hurt us or things we've picked up along the way. And a lot of times we're not even aware of our prejudgments. They simply are the lens through which we view the world. And for me to stand up here and say, stop being prejudiced, would work about as well as when I am driving in traffic with my wife and I say, stop being nervous. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work. If anything, it pushes her further away and makes her feel less safe. It would be about as effective as me standing up here and saying, stop being tempted. Right? We're all tempted. Even Jesus was tempted, and yet he was without sin. You see, it's not that we have temptations, it's how we act on our temptations that can ultimately lead us towards sin. And in the same way, the, mad, the, the fact of the matter is it's not about whether we are prejudiced. We are. It's how we respond to our prejudices. Does that make sense? That's what I want to talk about this morning, is how we respond to these natural feelings. Sometimes they are there to protect ourselves. He hurt me. He was abusive. Therefore, I will not trust men the same way that I trusted him. I will always have my guard up. That, group, that person, that individual, cheated me. Therefore, I will never trust people like him or her again. How do we as Christ followers, there's some questions there at the bottom of your, your outline on the first page. How do we, as Christ followers, navigate this world that, that so naturally wants to push people to arm's length? Hey, Chris, can I steal your, your bulletin for just a second or your outline? Thanks, sugar. That's all I need. So as followers of Jesus, how can we battle against this rising tide of hatred and distrust that so, is so prevalent in our culture today? How can we treat other people who are different from us? What, is, what are we called to do as Christ followers? How do we treat them? And then finally, how can we be part of the solution rather than perpetuating the problem? That's what I, wanna, I want us to explore this morning. And I can think of no better way to explore that than to allow Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Rabbi, to teach us those things. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Chris, I'm going to keep this if that's all right with you. Um, you know, prejudice, prejudgment is nothing new. It's as old as life itself. And, and quite honestly, Jesus and his, the culture in which he was raised was rampant with prejudice. The Jews themselves, this people, the, the people of God, were horribly prejudiced. In their mind, they were the chosen people of God and everybody else 
those whom they called Gentiles, which is just a way of saying anybody who's not Jewish, they were not the people of God. And the Jews felt we need to protect ourselves from them. We need to not mix with them. So we had Jews who would not, as a culture, they didn't interact with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with them. It was socially unacceptable. In fact, some of the disciples got in trouble for having meals with Gentiles. There were some that went so far as to say, I don't even want to look on somebody who is not Jewish because I don't want to be sullied by them. So they would walk through the courts. And when I was in Israel, I saw a person literally doing this when I was in the kind of section of where there's a lot of Muslims. The people would hold on to the shoulder of somebody else and they would be led through a crowd so that they wouldn't have to look at those dirty, dirty Gentiles. And yet, every single one of those individuals that they didn't even want to look upon, that they didn't want to sit down and eat with, was a child of God, created in God's image. Jesus died for all of them, just as he died for us. So Jesus was concerned with addressing that. And we see in Luke chapter 10 an interaction that takes place between one of these experts of the law, somebody who knows this book, or at least the Old Testament, really, really well, had probably memorized the entire thing. He knew the law of Moses backwards and forwards. We read in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, on one occasion an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Interesting word there, to test His motivation here is not, I really want to learn. His motivation is more, I want to see how you respond to this difficult question. I want to see if you really are worthy to be called a rabbi, if there's anything to what you have to offer. So this expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, rabbi, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How are you going to answer that one? And Jesus, recognizing that this guy's motives are not pure, recognizing that there's stuff underneath, he doesn't just answer the guy's question as I am so often so tempted to do. When somebody asks me a tough question, as a pastor, I'm like, I want to show them that I know what I'm talking about, that I'm trustworthy, so I try to answer it. And a lot of times I completely miss the heart of what's really going on. I might answer the question, but I completely miss them. And Jesus didn't often answer questions directly. A lot of times, he would answer a question with a question, and that's what he does here. He goes, well, what's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? In other words, he's drawn this guy out. Let's see where you're coming from. This expert of the law replied in verse 27, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the t- that, that is the same answer that Jesus gave other people when they asked him at other times. It encapsulates the law and the prophets. Love God, love others, end of story. If we do that, if we genuinely love God with everything, and we in turn love other people, we are fulfilling the law. We're fulfilling everything that the prophets came to encourage God's people to do. We are fulfilling what Jesus called us to do. There you go. You got it. Verse 28, Jesus responded, You've answered correctly. Now do this and you'll live. But this man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? In other words, he's saying, Okay, wait a minute. I am righteous. I love Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
I love him. So much so that I've memorized all of the words that he has said through his prophets. I've memorized and internalized all the law. I live righteously. And now I just want to know how many people do I actually have to love like I love myself? Is it all of the Israelites? Or is it, like some of the rabbis have said, just those Israelites, those Jews, who keep the law like I do, who love God and are are righteous in their actions? Is it just them? Like, how big is this circle? How many people do I actually have to love? That's the real question he's asking. And so now Jesus does respond to his question, but he doesn't do it straightforwardly. Instead, he tells him a story. Because through his story, he's able to do far more than just answer this guy's question. He's able to expose this man's prejudice. He's also able to show him not simply who to neighbor, but how to neighbor. So let's dive into this. And it's one you guys are familiar with, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it's a beautiful response to a question of who do I have to love? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about a 17-mile path that people knew pretty well. And it was pretty notorious for people getting um, accosted on that road. It was known as the way of blood because there were so many thieves and robbers along that way. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to come by down that road. And when he saw the man, he moved to the other side of the road and he walked right on by. And I don't know about Jesus' audience right there, but I would imagine they'd start going, well, well, yeah, he probably thought the guy was dead. He didn't want to touch him because if he touched a dead body, that would have made him unclean and that wouldn't have been good for a priest to do. At the very least, he must have been in a hurry. He had his reasons. But for whatever reason, the priest just kept going. Shortly thereafter, a Levite basically like a deacon in the church, somebody who cared for the temple. He comes by and he looks down and he sees the man bleeding on the side of the road. He too moves to the far side of the road and keeps going. Maybe he thought there were robbers up in the hills that if he stopped, this guy was just pretending to be hurt and he thought he might get in trouble. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and slowly led the man to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is basically the equivalent of two days' wage. Each denarii was a day's wage. So he pulls out two days' wages, slaps in in front of the innkeeper, and he says, take care of this man. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. It's interesting. uh, Martin Luther King was given a a sermon on this very story. And and can we, do we have that quote from Martin Luther King up there? This was his response. King said, the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Maybe I'll get accosted. Maybe I'll be made unclean. But the good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? For the Samaritan, he recognized that this guy was in trouble and he moved towards him. Now we hear this and we go, 
Well, yeah, it's the Good Samaritan. This is what he does. I mean, in our culture, Good Samaritan has come to mean somebody who stops and goes out of their way to care for somebody in need, right? But to Jesus' culture, to his audience that he's speaking to, this was beyond audacious to suggest that a Samaritan would help. This is offensive. Because do you know who the Samaritans are? I can only imagine what's going on for this expert of the law and all of the gathered people around. Because to them, Samaritans were evil. Samaritans were the refuse of the world. And let me explain why. When Israel had been a united kingdom, there were people that continued to come against them. And at at one point in Israel's history the nation of Assyria attacked the northern half of Israel and wiped them out. And the people of Israel found themselves deported, scattered to the wind. And Assyrians began to move into that area and settle it, take it over. They became squatters. They became uh, invaders. And there was a group of Jews who refused to leave the land. And instead of going and being with their fellow Israelites out there, they just said, you know what? We're all right with this situation. They married these Assyrian invaders. They had children with them. And those children are who we know as the Samaritans. Fast forward several hundred years. The people of Israel come back into the land. God has provided a way through a guy, Nehemiah, Through a guy, Ezra, we're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to rebuild the temple. We get to start rebuilding the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, these Samaritans are coming out of the woodworks. Hey, you're home. Awesome. We're here to help you rebuild the temple. And the Jews look at them as, who are you? Who do you think you are? You married the invaders that kicked us out of here. You turned your back not only on your people, but you turned your back on your God. We want nothing to do with you, and you will not lay a finger on this temple we're going to rebuild. You have no part with us. Well, the Samaritans were a little bit taken aback by that. And so they said, well, if you won't let us participate in this, we're going to go build our temple for ourselves so we can worship God too. He's still our God. We're going to go build a temple over here. The Jews were not happy with that fact, so what they did is they burned that temple to the ground in a scorched earth policy. Naturally, the Samaritans, because we're human, their response was, well, if you do that, we're going to get you back. We're going to retaliate. So the Samaritans, around the time of Jesus' birth, a group of Samaritans snuck into Jerusalem and dumped a whole bunch of bones, human bones, into the temple, desecrating it. That would be tantamount to somebody breaking into this church and spray-painting swastikas and curse words all over the walls. Suffice it to say, there was not a lot of love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. They hated one another about as, as powerfully as two rival gangs. And they wanted nothing more than for the other group to simply cease to exist. And into this cultural dynamic, Jesus says, listen, a priest and a Levite see this guy bleeding on the ground and they pass on by. And a Samaritan sees him, takes pity on him, stops and helps him up, pours some oil and wine onto his wounds to help start the healing process, to take some of the pain away. He goes beyond that, just the, the quick fix, and he lifts him up on his donkey and takes him into town 
where he then begins to nurse him back to health. The next morning, he pays for this guy to be taken care of for several more days. And he says, I'm going to come back and check on him. And if there's any more expense, I'll pay that too. You can see why it would be so offensive to this group of people so much so that let's look at verse 36. Jesus asks this guy who's said, well, who's my neighbor? He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, we all know the right answer. The expert of the law knew the right answer. But his prejudice was so powerful. His disgust towards those dirty, despicable, untrustworthy Samaritans was so strong, he couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So how does he respond? Verse 37. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Right? And you can just kind of hear that sullenness in his tone, even though it's not necessarily written into here. He won't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And then Jesus turns around and says, now go and do likewise. What I love about this story as I've already said, is that it goes beyond answering this guy's question. Jesus could have said when he said, well, who's my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. Everybody who has breath in their lungs has been created in God's image and he loves them. Therefore, everybody's your neighbor. Could have said that. But his story exposed some deeper seated things, such as the way that this expert of the law liked to draw circles around different groups and say, these are my neighbors. Those are not my neighbors. I have to love them. I don't have to love them. I need to care for their needs. I don't need to worry about their needs. Jesus exposes this guy's prejudgments, his prejudices. And then he shows him not merely who his neighbor is, but how to be a neighbor to those people we come into contact with. Because the reality is, all three of these guys walking down the road saw that body on the ground. All three of them saw a man in need. Only one of them was willing to stop. And even he had to overcome centuries of prejudice. Centuries of enmity. Centuries of feeling like, You treat us like garbage, like you are better than us. And he had to overcome that to move towards him. And Jesus looks at the religious expert and he says, now go and do likewise. And he would look at us today and say, now go and do likewise. Because we're surrounded with people who are different from us. We're surrounded with people who have different perspectives. We're surrounded by people who have hurt us deeply. We're surrounded by people who it would be the most natural thing in the world to reject them. And we are called to love them instead of seek to hurt them. To, to move across the street towards them rather than just walking on by. Now we're familiar with this story, but I want to give you one last illustration of what this looks like before we move on today. Back in 1996, the year I graduated from high school, back in 96, there was a a Ku Klux Klan gathering, Klan rally near the University of Michigan. And as so often happens with those kind of things, 
there was a counter demonstration down the street made up largely of students from the University of Michigan who were decrying the anger and the hatred that is toxic within the Ku Klux Klan, right? They're basically saying these people are haters. These people are evil. These people seek to hurt other people and we do not support them. Well, during this whole interaction, there was a guy that left the rally. He had a nice Confederate flag t-shirt because they still made those and allowed those in that day. And he comes walking down the street and he happened to walk right through this crowd of protesters. Protesters, I will remind you, that are there to decry the anger and the hatred of the Ku Klux Klan. And as he walks through the middle of this group, they began to swear at him. They began to throw bottles at him. They began to hit him with the sticks from their signs, knocked him down on the ground and began to beat him and kick him. Now, there was a girl in that crowd, a girl named Keisha Thomas, who was there as a demonstrator, as somebody decrying the hatred of the Ku Klux Klan. And as she's sitting there watching this, her response is to throw her body on top of this man, to shield him from being beaten by f- from her fellow protesters. A couple years after this happened, uh, Oprah interviewed Keisha, and I just want to show you what her response was. Can we show that video? Here's the point this morning. We all carry prejudice around within us. We have all made prejudgments. There's a reason why they're there. And I don't have the time to go through why they may be there. But I'm not suggesting that we simply stop being prejudiced because that's irrational. It's what we do with our prejudicial thoughts. It's what we do with our prejudicial impulses. Because I'll tell you one thing. We will not overcome the hatred that is rampant in our community by simply returning hate with more hate. We have been called to return hate with love. We've got a pretty good example of it. Because the gospel message declares that the God of this universe created us to have a loving relationship with him. And we have turned our back on him. We have chosen to try to be the captains of our own ship. And in so doing, we've pushed him to arm's length. And yet our God did not return rejection with more rejection. Our God moved towards us and said, I will do anything I can to redeem you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up right now. And so he sent Jesus to die in our place. And we declare in our gospel that as Jesus hung there on the cross, bleeding and dying for the very crowds that were hurling insults at him, the very crowds that were mocking him, spitting at him, and basically saying, if you really are the Son of God, then you come on down and prove it. And he didn't return hatred with more hatred. He didn't choose to curse those crowds He closed his eyes and he said, God, forgive them for they know not what, they don't have a clue what they're doing. Forgive them. And we are called to love other people with the same heart that Jesus has loved us because we are those crowds that he died for. But we're more than that. 
we get to be his representatives. And he told his disciples on the night before he was so beatily, so brutally beaten and killed for us that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love. And so on the bottom of your outlines, there's some questions that I would ask you to seriously consider this week. What people or groups do you find yourself prejudiced towards? What sort of prejudgments have you made about them? And then how can you begin to overcome your prejudice, to take those thoughts captive so that we do not act on them and allow them to burst into hatred? And right now I want to invite you as we go into a time of response. It, it, it may look like you just sitting before God and, and beginning to allow Him to sift through your heart and your mind and expose some of the prejudices you've carried in, some of the prejudgments you've made. It may look like coming down here in the front and getting down on your knees and confessing them to Him. Right? G.I. Joe said, knowing is half the battle. So just just responding out of submission. Now, you may have been truly hurt by somebody. If you need prayer for any reason, I'm going to ask my elders and their wives to just kind of stand up, some in the back, some up here in the front. If you need prayer, it could be a surrounding this topic. It could be for any other reason. This might be a time that you want to respond. But right now, let's just let's just spend some time worshiping our God and appreciating the fact that We are not defined by our differences because at the end of the day, we are all part of the same race, the human race. And Jesus died for all of us. And that is truly good news. Let's worship together.